אחי, ברודר, how much do you make? אחותי, סיסטר, how much do you pay rent? אח שלו, do you want to share with us who you voted for in the last elections? It's a little uncomfortable, a little too personal. I didn't always know that. Five years ago, when I moved from Israel to the United States to pursue rabbinic ordination, I thought those questions were normal. <laughs> I thought they were part of every conversation. And the truth is, in Israel, it doesn't matter who you're speaking with. It could be with your cab driver, it could be your bank teller, it could be your best friend. It doesn't matter. Those questions are legitimate. And the truth is that, in most cases, you will get the answers to these questions without you even asking. It's the way it is. And so you can imagine that I came here five years ago, I was in for a culture shock. Conversations got pretty awkward. They got uncomfortable. I thought I was being friendly. It turns out I was being a nudnik. <laughs> I thought I was building bridges. Turns out I was just putting up walls. Things got super uncomfortable. And to make things worse, because <laughs> why not? I made things worse. I usually followed up those questions with another. I usually ask my friends, Achi, when are you making Aliyah? <laughs> yes, I actually ask that. I just couldn't wrap my mind around the fact that my friends, future rabbis, deeply committed to the Jewish people, weren't moving to Israel. I couldn't understand it. I mean, we all know that's what real Jews do. They live in Israel. And it got worse. And my social circle wasn't growing. I didn't have a lot of friends. And so I was thinking about it a little bit, and I realized that it wasn't the question itself that was problematic. And it wasn't that I was trying to be offensive. I wasn't trying to be offensive. But it was the attitude that went with this question that was so offensive. You see, what I was actually telling my friends was that their version of Judaism, their life here in America, was wrong. It was a pale version of the real deal. It was even immoral. And so, not explicitly, but definitely implicitly, as an Israeli, I was carrying myself and telling them that their life's work as rabbis, future rabbis, was almost worthless. And that only my endeavor, as an Israeli, was the real deal. And that was hurtful. And so I needed to pivot, because I wanted friends, and I needed to think about a different paradigm, a different way to approach the conversation. I realized that the friendship would take time, and it would, it would require trust, it would require respect, and it would require some investment on my part. But I also realized that just like on my personal level, just with my close friends, it is this approach, one which negates diaspora life, which is at the root of the growing distance between the Israeli Jewish community and the American Jewish community. Because in Israel, we are taught that Israel is up here and diaspora life is down here. And there's a power dynamic and that imbalance limits our ability to have a real conversation. And we need to change that. We need to pivot and think about a new paradigm, one which sees the role of diaspora Jewry and the unfolding story of the Jewish people. Now, before you all jump at me, I'm not here to question the centrality of Israel in our lives or the fact that we've been yearning for sovereignty for so long. Not that. I'm also not here to question our prophetic text, which talk about the ingathering of exiles. Not here either. What I'm here to do is to talk about a paradigm in which we see American Jewry and diaspora life for what it has been 
and it, its contributions to the Jewish people. One that sees diaspora Jewry in its holistic version. Not just as walking JNF blue boxes or potential immigrants or strategic partners in foreign governments. One that understands the contribution of diaspora life to Israel and to Judaism. Now the beauty of this idea, the beauty of this dynamic is that it's not new, it's old. It's as old as the Jewish people itself. You see, after 40 long years of traveling the desert, after all the trials and tribulations we went through, no food, no water, the golden calf, on the verge of entering the promised land, two and a half tribes approached Moshe and asked him, can we stay behind? They were granted permission to stay outside of the promised land. And indeed, in the book of Joshua, at the very end, this dynamic comes up again. The two and a half tribes have fulfilled their commitments and are asked to join their families in the other side of the Jordan River. And anxieties are aired once again, because this time it was becoming real. The Jordan River was going to become a border, both physical and spiritual, between two parts of the Israelite people. And so after some discussion and outlining a pact between these two parts of our people, they were allowed to go. And they joined their families outside the Promised Land. And what's so interesting here is it isn't just a historical context. It's not just something that we talk about in our Bible. The relationship that has existed then and until today between these two centers was a two-way street. Israel influenced diaspora and diaspora influenced Israel. It is clear what the role of Israel is. It was always our source of inspiration. We always aspired for sovereignty. It was what we were hoping for. And in our attempts to found our own state and our attempts to go back to our homeland, we often neglected and, often, and even marginalized the role diaspora Jewry replays in our tradition. The truth is that it was a two-way street. And just as life in Israel informed life outside of Israel, the other way is also true. The synagogue is a Babylonian invention, and yet every community around the world, regardless of where it is, has one. The majority of our texts, liturgy, homiletics, philosophy, it was all and mostly written outside of Israel. And my personal favorite, the Babylonian Talmud, most likely the most deciding text in our canon, was written outside of Israel. And not only that, in most cases in which it, con it conflicts with the Jerusalem Talmud, with the Yerushalmi, it overrules. That means that Diaspora Torah overrules Israel Torah. That's crazy. I never heard of that. But that's not always the case, because there are also cases where the Yerushalmi overrules the Bavli. And so the relationship is back and forth. Now, this might sound trivial to you, but as an Israeli, it was shocking. You see, we take Jewish history from the Tanakh to the Palmach, from the Bible to the founding of the state. And we condense that very long period of history into one moment. It's a moment that's defined by weakness. It's feeble. It's fleeting. And so we disregard it. We set Judaism in Israel here and life outside of Israel down here. And when I came here to America, I found that that paradigm isn't true. Jewish life outside of Israel is rich. It's vibrant. It's valuable. It's important for the conversation. See, my experience as an Israeli is that Judaism is everywhere. It's in the air. It's in the water. It's in the national holidays. It's the language. It's the TV shows. It's the music. For better or for worse, you can't get away from it. Living in Israel through the mindset of a majority culture, as a majority people from a sovereign state, is powerful. And it highlights a particularist Judaism. When I came here to America, I found that 
Jewish life here is completely different. It has a different flavor. It's a different brand. And it is equally powerful. Judaism in America is lived out of the prism, out of the understanding and approach of a minority. Now, we don't feel like a minority often, but historically that context has influenced the way we organize, the way we think about our boundaries, about inclusion, about assimilation. Living as a minority highlights a universalistic Judaism. And so living here gave me the opportunity to tap into those two modes of our life, of our tradition, a particularist Judaism and a universalist Judaism. And that's an incredible thing. But we don't need to live in both places to see that. If we lift our heads for a moment and look at our texts, at our traditions, we see that the idea of balancing and living the tension, the tension of universalist and particularist Judaism is everywhere. It's important because if we go off and just adopt one of these, if we just go on the particularist end or just on the universalist end, we will get a limited, distorted version of what it means to be a Jew. And we see this today. In Israel, we are experiencing a rise in extremism, religious and political. It's justified by the political context, by the threats external, the geographic location, out of our tribalism. And it's real. And here, we are dealing with rising rates of assimilation, lack of affiliation with Israel, and the deconstruction of our structures as a community. And that is born out of an uber-universalistic approach. But this bleak reality is also an opportunity. It is also an opportunity in which we can adopt a new paradigm, one which we infuse the strengths of each one of these communities into each other to counter some of the negative manifestations of it. So in Israel, if we just educate a little bit more about what it means to be the other, to think about minorities, we might be able to curtail some of the negative manifestation of tribalism, of Jewish tribalism. And in the U.S., if we are able to infuse a little bit of tribal pride that we have in Israel, we might be able to counterbalance some of the uber-universalistic tendencies we are currently dealing with. And that's a powerful opportunity. Our sages were onto something. They understood the importance of holding the tension between universalistic and particularistic Judaism. When they put together the Friday night Kiddush, they used two examples to anchor the Sabbath. They used the creation of the world, and they used the creation of our people. They used these two elements to sanctify the Sabbath, creating a special moment in time and space, elevating our reality. And we can do the same. And so building a relationship will take time, it will take investment, it will take flexibility. We'll have to build mutual respect. But most of all, it will require us to adopt a different set of questions. Achim v'achayot, brothers and sisters, what can we learn from each other?